welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Optical Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest, Saima Hanif QC. Hello, Saima. Hello, Gotham. And great to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And, and, on, and on a personal level, I'm really, really overjoyed to be speaking with you today. I'm going to introduce you first, Saima, so that everyone knows who you are. Those who don't know who you are know who you are. But Saima is a QC at three Verulam buildings, one of the premier barristers' chambers in London and globally. Saima was called to the bar in 2002 and took Silk last year in 2021. She has an incredibly diverse commercial practice in line with three Verulam buildings' profile and is recommended in several areas of practice, which include banking and financial services, insurance, and all other aspects of dispute resolution, including international arbitration. A number of wonderfully well-deserved accolades have been said about Saima. She's a fantastic litigator. She's persuasive before any forum. Her versatility is much lauded. And, you know, amongst other things, a very clever advocate, but also the one I loved the most, perhaps, is her piercing legal insight. So Saima is a real leader and is a real leader in many aspects. And we look forward to discussing all of these things with you today. The last thing I will say actually about you, Saima, which uh, I think also just underlines just how fabulous you've been doing is that you are listed in the Lawyers Hot 100 for 2022. And that's no mean feat at all. That's a big deal. So very well done to you, Saima. So to kick things off, I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, how did you come to the law? Uh, or how did the law find you? It's a good question, Gotham. So for me, actually, I think it probably started when I was very young as a child. So I loved reading. And I found going through school, I really enjoyed debating, actually. Now, obviously, when you're young, you don't quite understand the nuances of the legal profession. So at that stage, all I knew was I wanted to be in the legal world and I wanted to be a judge. That's what I thought was sort of the pinnacle of, of the legal profession. Fantastic, yeah. And so that then sort of, as it were, fed into the fact that I thought, well, if I want to do this, what should I do at university? Actually, I want to study law. So that's how it all sort of started. And then when I went to university, I read Law at Oxford. That's when I really got into the nuances of law as it were as an intellectual discipline. And I think that's when I started to think a lot sort of harder about the different aspects of the law, the different, obviously, we've got a split profession. And I think it's through the study that I did at university that I thought, actually, yes, the bar something that sort of appeals to me. And though that was my sort of initial um, move towards it. I was incredibly lucky at university in the sense that I had some fantastic university tutors. And in particular, I really enjoyed doing public and constitutional law. And a result of which at the age of 21, I thought that's what I wanted to do in life. I wanted to be a public lawyer. So I initially set out actually as a pure public lawyer and I joined um, a Chambers and Gray's Inn. So that was the very beginning of my career. 
But as with all things, Gotham, as you know, life is never a straightforward route and the no. path is often meandering. <laughs> yes. um, so there's a meandering path between where I started out as a pure public lawyer and where I now am um, as a, a specialist in, in commercial work and particularly banking and finance. Yeah, and it's fair to say, though, that that public law side of your practice is very much still there because you do get involved in, in that area still. So um, it's something that I know you still do. Um, so, you know, along the um, your journey from student through to becoming a pupil barrister, a, you know, a junior and then uh, as a QC, who are the people who've been the most important in terms of mentoring, sponsoring and supporting you? Yeah, the, again, I think these are really good questions, Gotham. And so I suppose before I answer it specifically, I guess I want to make a generic point, really, which is, at the beginning of any career, there's often this sense, I think, as a young person of sort of a sense of fear almost and not quite feeling that you know where you're going or that you, are you doing the right thing? And that can sometimes make you quite nervous, I think. where When you finally make the, the journey and the path and you get to where we are, Gotham, you look back and think, actually, often it's the strange things that happen to you in your life and the strange opportunities that actually end up, I think, often being the making of you. And they're often the opportunities that you should seize. And I think along with that, I think a huge part of that actually are the people you come across. And I think my view has always been actually one should always embrace the people you meet and you should talk to everyone you can meet because you never know where that pearl of wisdom might come from and what may be to the other person just a casual conversation with you that perhaps even doing out of politeness, actually for you, the difference that can make to where you may end up can be enormous. And so I think along the journey that I've had, there's probably a number of people that I would um, mention. So at university, for example, I had um, a fantastic tutor who taught me both public law and actually EU law, who's called Adam Tompkins. He's now a professor um, at Glasgow University. And I remember not only the substantive law discussions we had, but I remember at one point uh, having done an essay and not having quite got the mark that I thought I should have gotten, feeling quite sort of uh, dispirited about it. You know, he said this phrase, he said to me, look, Simon, your CV should follow your life, not the other way around. And actually, it's a phrase that has stuck with me throughout, actually. And throughout the course of my career, when there have been bumps and turns or unexpected things that perhaps haven't gone the way that I've gone, uh, that I've wanted them to go, that phrase has stuck with me, this idea that actually the most important thing really at a holistic level is the life that you are leading. And obviously, whilst we all value and cherish our professional aspirations, actually that ought not to be the measure of ourselves or how we see ourselves. So I think that's a, that's a, a source of wisdom that I've always taken with me. As a pupil, which back, I did my pupillage at 45 Grayson Square, as I said, as a public law pupillage, um, I had a particular pupil master Philip Koppel, who is now Philip Koppel QC and is the head of chambers at Cornerstone. I sat with Philip for three months and actually that three months with him was so fundamental, I think. To, it shaped the way I think not only about the law, but also about the bar and also actually about life in general. And I don't think Philip will quite realise actually the influence he had on me um, in the time I sat with him. And I think what I learned from Philip is this notion that Yes, obviously, we are lawyers and there are certain precepts of law which you need to know. And obviously, you have these huge tomes of legal learning. But actually, what I think is really important in the way that we approach things is to look at things from a first principles perspective. 
So when a problem comes before you, rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Chitty and see what the answer is, actually you should look at it yourself and just look at it from a first principles perspective and think, actually, what's going on here? What is the problem? How do I approach this? Uh, so that was one that was one aspect which, I, which was for me was fundamental actually to the way that I approach my practice even now. Um, and I think the other thing Philip taught me is actually to enjoy the work we do and to see everything as obviously it's challenging at times, but if you can learn to enjoy it and as it were to litigation, I often think of it as a roller coaster. There's highs and lows, but to try and as it were enjoy that journey, I think it means that that, that aspect of the work you do and um, you, you you treat it very very differently. The third person I would mention is someone called Hodge Malik QC. Oh, yes. Um, and I think you know Hodge Gotham. I know Hodge and his brother, Ali. And Ali, absolutely. And they're both at Chambers. <laughs> well, indeed, absolutely. I'm incredibly fortunate to now be in Chambers with the both of them. So my first major FS case was a case I did with Hodge back in 2011, 2012. And I think through working with Hodge, he really did teach me how to run these complex FS cases. And actually, contrary to what people think, Often, it, as well as knowing the legal content, which you need to know, there's a strategic and tactical dimension to run in long cases. No doubt, as you yourself will know as well, Gotham. And Hodge really taught me how to do these things. And again, they're lessons which um, I still remember to this day and which I now find myself applying um, in my career, even at this relatively senior stage. So Hodge was instrument, instrumental in, my, in introducing me to FS law and as it were, in teaching me how to approach these things. So they are just three individuals that I've mentioned, but actually there's been a whole host of people along the way. And as you've noted, Gotham, now I'm at 3VB, I'm incredibly blessed to be surrounded by some exceptional, wonderful people. And I think that actually having mentors or people around you to support your, your career, it's a huge part of your professional development. And I think it's very much an ongoing thing, actually. It doesn't stop just because you get to partner level or silk level. I think it's an ongoing thing. And I think it's actually one of the beauties of professional life that you develop these relationships and you're always learning and sharing ideas and improving. Now, that's very powerful and, and impactful, Soma. I, I couldn't say more than, than I agree with you wholeheartedly because, I mean, I've had a very similar thing where there have been a number of people who were actively my mentors and some who didn't realise they were, you know, directing me for a number of reasons. One, because... They may have done something I didn't particularly like, but that helped me on my journey. And some who did think, who who did really positive things to really constructively help me and inspire me, some didn't even do anything. So I remember when I was very junior as a trainee many, many years ago, there was a, a very senior partner called Shashi Rajani, who at that time was at a firm called uh, Cameron McKenna. It's now part of CMS. But I, and I've never met Shashi. But Shashi was a very senior partner doing insolvency and restructuring work when I was a trainee in 1991. And I just thought to myself, wow, this guy must be in that he, he, he must have been in his 50s by that time. I was thinking, wow, I want to be like him. You know, so there's a lot of people who I've met who I've not met who've actually been very important to me. And and actually one person I will call out specifically at 3VB who said something to me a few times, you know, said a few things when I worked with him was John Jarvis QC. And so I worked with, I've worked with John on a number of things over the years. And, uh, and when I made partner in 2000, John was very sweet and said a number of things to me, which have still stuck with me. 
And it's like you say, there are some things that never leave you. You know, sure. you, they register with you and they keep inspiring you. And people don't always realize they've done it. But actually, it really registers. And then it helps you give back to younger people. Absolutely. I think that latter point, Gotham, you are spot on, you know, as you say, actually, you're absolutely right. It's the things that happen to you as a junior, you remember them, you take them away with you. Then as you say, when you finally get to the senior level, as you say, you're absolutely right. It's an opportunity to then give back and share some of the learning and the wisdom that you've accrued along the way. So I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, thank you. Uh, so, but then, you know, just tell us a little bit about, you know, when, um, as your practice has developed, I know you mentioned Hodge was very instrumental in how you've developed your very flourishing financial services practice. But looking at other areas of practice, did you have a natural interest in certain areas? Or did you come to certain areas because when you were younger in your career, more senior barristers brought you into cases? Or did you just naturally lean towards certain areas of practice? That's an excellent question, actually, Gotham. And I think actually that question, it raises so many other interesting issues. And I know some of them we're going to go on and talk about, such as diversity and inclusion. But I think this is a great sort of issue that you've raised. And I suppose my position is it's probably a bit of both, actually. It's both the things you naturally lean towards, but also the people you meet along the way that can help you to develop what may be your latent interest, or in fact, introduce you to something that you may never have thought about. And I think for me in particular, because I really enjoyed doing public law and administrative law at university, I think perhaps there was an un- there's always been an underlying intellectual interest in that area of law. And actually, Gotham, I think in some ways, it also relates back also, I'd actually say to my own sort of personal views about how I think countries should be run and how I think a state should interact with its its citizens. So I think it also reflects weirdly the Mm. politics that I grew up with at home. I mean, I grew up in in Bolton in the northwest of England and we had a small family business. Mm -hmm. And I think within that household, there was naturally the sense, rightly or wrongly, that here we were, these sort of small minnows in this this huge country. My, My parents had emigrated from Pakistan. So there's almost a sense of, we were these small individuals trying to make our way in the greater world. And I think actually, when I came to do public law and realised, gosh, there are legal mechanisms whereby that small minnow can challenge the state, I thought it was really fascinating. And um, so I think that interest has always stayed with me. I think what, how that developed, and I think, for example, when, when I worked closely with Hodges, I suddenly realised, actually, you can use these public law principles in a commercial context. So actually... You can apply it to the banking and finance sector. And I think that sort of interaction between, as it were, the pure world of sort of government government decision making and then this very different world of sort of private law commercial transactions, I think I found the interaction between the two really interesting and fascinating. So actually, I think it was perhaps it's fortuitous when I ended up doing this work with Hodge that it brought together actually two worlds which I would have previously thought wouldn't really mesh together very well, but actually in practice they do. And I think particularly what I really enjoy is this sense of even if you are a state, actually, you are still accountable. And in a sense, I think this idea of making large organisations accountable and transparent for the decisions they make, I think it's something that at a human level, it really resonates with me. 
um, as part of doing my mm. other my doing the sort of work, what it's also I think sort of brought home to me, and it's an area again which I think conceptual I'm really interested in is is how the marketplace can change human behaviour. And again, actually, you may not think this, but this is all also goes back to my home environment because we had a small business, um, and it, as anyone will say who's grown up in a family business, it becomes a huge part of your family life. You don't have this. Yeah. You don't have mm. this demarcation between home and work. It's one and the same thing. I mean, I, I'm one of four siblings, but we often used to joke that the fifth sibling in our family was the business, and actually, it's got more <laughs> attention than the rest of us put together. But I think the reason why I sort of look at it that way is I do think there's this interesting interaction between market forces and human behaviour. And obviously you see that in financial services. And then you see regulation, which is brought in to try and moderate some of the, as it were, the excesses of the free market. Um, But, you know, I'm hugely interested in how you can use marketplace forces to essentially improve society, Mm. educate individuals and move things along. But that's a very long-winded way of answering your, I think, absolutely fair question, which is, well, how do you develop this practice? So I do think it's a bit of both. You will always have a natural interest and an inclination. And I think you need mm. to do that because that you need to have that because it then motivates you, I think, to, as it were, to work hard at that particular chosen area. And then you end up doing it because you love it, at which point you've hit the jackpot if you're doing yeah. something you love. But I think it's also True. really, really important to have senior people and mentor you or bring you along because it naturally if they can introduce you to a new area of law or teach you to mm-hmm. how, as to how something is done it will inevitably I think make your path that bit smoother uh, than it may well have been so I think it's it's both aspects really which is why to your point I think as we become more senior ourselves I think it's something that we need to remember that actually we also have an obligation to bring along with us mm-hmm. the junior people behind us. Fabulous. And we are going to return, as you said, to the very important issue of diversity, equality and inclusion. And what you've just said there really resonates with a lot of of what we'll be talking about in terms of how you doing so well, you being so entrenched in what you do can rub off really positively on other people. And we'll come back to that. But one thing I cannot resist since you've said you come from the great town of Bolton is when I was a trainee, this is a true story, this is again at my expense. Many years ago when I was a trainee, um, I was doing a case in amongst other courts, in the Bolton County Court. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Um, and the partner I was working for at the time, I was, I was, I was in fact a trainee, so, and the associate was away and the partner was away. And there was this hearing in the Bolton County Court. And he said, uh, the partner said, look, I just go up there. You probably won't have to say anything. Just go up there and just uh, make sure that you, you know, keep a watch and you say whatever you need to say. I said, sure. So I read the file and I go up to Bolton, not knowing that I should have told the other side that I was going to be there. So I, <laughs> so I turn up in Bolton and the other side's addressing the court. And then the, the judge uh, is the, isn't made aware that there's someone from the other side who's turned up from London. And then the county court judge said, well, you know, since Mr. Bhattacharya's turned up, we should let him say something. <laughs> He's come all the way from London. Um, and so I just remember that was, that was you know, it, it all ended well. Um, yes, but, absolutely. Um, but I still remember uh, about 30 odd years ago going up to Bolton County Court. Um, but, uh, and of course, Bolton is, uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's greater Manchester and everything else. So I know Bolton fairly well. 
So, you know, let's turn to that issue that we were talking about a moment ago about di- of the diversity, equality and inclusion. I mean, on any level, Simon, I mean, you are a role model. And this podcast series, as you know, is being done as part of a special series of podcasts that we're doing to celebrate and, and to honour South Asian Heritage Month. And you and I are both of South Asian heritage and extraction. And we are rightly proud of that side of our heritage and Absolutely. our lives. Absolutely. And it's what's made us. Um, you know, these are the sacrifices your parents made when they came to this country for you and your siblings. Um, you know, it goes without saying it was incredibly important to you and remains important to you. But now that you have, you know, you've been doing so well in your career, and as I said in the introduction, you became a QC last year. And I must also say, one thing you said earlier, I, I, it didn't pass me by that when you were young, you wanted to be a judge. Well, one day I can say I will be even more overjoyed when you are on the high court bench and I shall be uh, the first person to celebrate with you. But just in terms of things, I mean, we've obviously come a long way uh, in terms of these issues, be it gender diversity, ethnic, ethnic diversity, sexual diversity. Now, we all know these are very important concepts that need a lot more work on. But I'd be interested in your thoughts as to, well, first of all, just how important these concepts are to you, and but then also the role that you feel you can play to further these objectives. Absolutely, Gotham. And I think I'll start by picking up from a point you made, that as you rightly say, we are proud of our heritage as indeed others from uh, as indeed most all people will be and I think that's really important actually as a starting point that I think we need the beauty I think of diversity taking it a very sort of holistic view is you can gather together this sort of global experience and with that I think that the sum total of that is far better than the individual parts actually so I think as a starting point you know absolutely I think it's critical to to, to actually not just the legal industry, but as society as a whole, you know, where do I sort of see, I suppose, for myself? And first of all, it's very kind of you just to say that I'm a role model. And I think the interesting Gotham, and I don't know how you felt when you became partner, is when people say it to you, there's almost this sort of sense of you have to do a double check with yourself and think, <laughs> gosh, am I actually now in that, that position? And you almost don't quite realise yourself how these things develop. But I think now I have become more comfortable with the fact that actually when you reach a senior position in an organisation, whether it's law, business, what have you, actually there does then come with that, I think, a sense of responsibility, but you can use that in a really positive way. So I think now where I do sort of something I now firmly believe in is first, I think visibility is hugely important, actually. And when I speak to young people, whether they're at sixth form or they're just about to do their university degree or they've just finished university, it's clear speaking to them that actually that visibility is important. And to repurpose that phrase, you know, you want to be able to see what you might become, whereas if you can't see it, that almost sends out this sort of invisible signal that actually it's not for people like you. So I think it's really important, Gotham, that people like you and I and others actually are seen to be visible and are seen to be speaking about these things because it sends, I think that message filters down. In terms of looking at it, I suppose, from a, from a more commercial perspective as well, 
there's so much data, Gotham, which shows that actually, if you have a plurality of views within your organization, your organization will be much better off for it. And actually, the decisions that you end up with will be far better than if you just have a small group of people that, that, we, that are sort of homogenous and think the same things. So I think, in a, in a sense, there's actually a value in it, at, even at a commercial level. It's a good, it's an end in itself, which ought to be established, but it cuts across a number of paths. I think what we're now seeing, I think, which is wonderful, is there's now an openness and a willingness to discuss these things in a way which I, I wasn't there when I first started, actually. And I suspect it's probably similar for you, Gotham. Yeah. And actually, to be honest, when I first started, you almost there was almost a sense of, gosh, this is quite an awkward subject. So rather than talking about it openly, if we can, we'll probably ignore it or we'll sort of creep around the sides. You know, happily, that's completely been turned on its head. And, you know, by virtue of us having this conversation, Gotham, that demonstrates how, how much things have changed. What I think is very interesting, though, and actually if you approach it from, a, as it were, an evidence-based perspective, is actually how the various equality strands are playing out. So I think happily, Gotham, certainly what we're seeing at the very junior end is there's much more gender parity now than, say, there used to be 15 or 20 years to, uh, 20 years ago. And that's something which is very positive. And if you take a step back and look at university, actually, Gotham, interestingly, and that's, it's, I'm saying this very crudely, at, in universities, I think possibly either there's 50-50 gender parity or actually there's slightly more female yeah. graduates so understandably, that will then make its way into the workplace. Also with ethnicity, whether it's South Asian or otherwise, actually, again, you're seeing at the more junior levels, there is now, I think, greater volumes of people coming through. And as long as we retain this wonderful talent, we will then see it eventually making its way through to the top. And so I think there is genuinely cause to be hopeful and another thing that I think has made a huge difference is certainly when I came to, to the bar back in the early 2000s, it was still a fairly domestic profession. Now, actually, I think the world is global and I think industries are global in a way that perhaps wasn't the case in the 1980s and 1990s. And what we're now seeing, which I think is wonderful, is we're seeing Asian people who were not just people like me, Gotham, that were born here and grew up here, but actually people who have grown up, say, in India, Pakistan or Bangladesh, have done their first degrees possibly there, but at, and they've now come to London to work. And I think that's a new evolution, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And I think illustrates, actually, that there's been some real positive developments on this aspect. Where I think actually Gotham, there's perhaps slightly, there is less cause, I think, for there has been less progress, rather, with regard to social mobility, and I think in particular, Gotham, if you then, what they call intersectionality, if you impose ethnicity onto social mobility, what you're seeing actually, which, I mean, it's interesting, and I think it also shows where we need to do further work, is in trying to show to uh, people from disadvantaged backgrounds or people for whom their parents may not have gone to university, that actually the legal profession and other professions, that is still something they should think about. And I think that's still an area where more outreach work um, is perhaps still necessary. But the general trajectory, I think, is very positive. And I think the more people we have that speak about these things, that reach out to students, um, the better we'll all be for it. Again, incredibly powerful and impactful, Sam. I, again, I just agree with you so whole, wholeheartedly on everything you've said. And I think the positive image which people like you Simon give about you can achieve these things it's not about you being 
from an ethnic background or being female or being f- or anything. It's just about the fact that there are people that people can look to and aspire towards and get inspiration from. And I think also, you know, like you say, there's been a lot of progress in terms of more people at the junior end of our professions coming through from an ethnically diverse and gender diverse background. And thank goodness for that, because you're quite right to say that the decisions are much better and it's proven, as you rightly say, where you have a mix of people involved. But also you want people to be able to fulfill their potential. And, you know, look, I, I don't want to embarrass you more than I need to, Simon. You know that I'm I'm always one to be very straightforward. But, you know, I just rejoice at your at how well you've done because it's uh, it's a very positive thing you're doing because there aren't that many a top female silks of an ethnic minority background doing the sort of work that you're doing, you know, the hardcore, the heavyweight commercial work. And so it's wonderful to see. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing things just get better and better and better for you personally and for everyone from a South Asian and indeed from any ethnic background. So look, thank you again for those wonderful thoughts. As we now approach the end of the podcast, our listeners particularly enjoy the next sort of segment I'm going to lurch into. Sure. Which is, <laughs> but I personally love this too, <laughs> which is completely not about law. It's about <laughs> other things. And as you said, and again, one of the things you said in this thing amongst many uh, that I will not forget is your CV needs to follow your life, which one of your wise mentors told you. So looking at your life in three areas, Yes. The first one is music. So is there a particular sort of music, any bands or singers that you particularly like? It's a great great point. And so basically, God, I want to say, you know, you're absolutely right, actually, that it's important that we talk about ourselves, not just in our narrow professional achievements, but actually, you know, our personalities as a whole and the lives we live as a whole, because I think actually often that's where things get really interesting. So with music, I think as with my career, as you know, there are parallels, actually, when I started, you know, as a teenager, I probably had a very narrow range of musical interests, actually, what they'd probably now what I've now often heard referred to as cheesy music or, 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 or sort of Britpop, <laughs> yes. so, you know, the usual such things like Madonna and um, Aha, that those sorts of bands, which probably now most youngsters haven't even heard of. And so I've definitely still retained those tastes. But interestingly, as you move through life and you meet new people, they introduce you to new types of musical genres. So one sort of band I was in, or rather an orchestral ensemble that I was introduced to um, by a, a colleague, it's something called the Satchel Jazz Ensemble. It's a mm-hmm. Pakistani orchestra. I think they sort of came to the fore in 2010, 2011. And what they do is they take sort of Western jazz standards or well-known Western jazz pieces, and then they effectively produce a wonderful magic and improvise using traditional musical instruments such as the sitar or the tabla. And what you end up with, Gotham, is this just wonderful, beautiful music, which brings together two very different cultural ways of looking at music. So actually, as I've sort of got older, what I'm really interested in is actually where you see music from different cultures and different backgrounds. So the Satchel Jazz Ensemble, I absolutely recommend um, if you if it's not your plan. And they've got some fantastic pieces on YouTube. And occasionally they do come to London Mm. as well to, to play. And then also I have um, a very strong East African connection. Um, my husband's East African 
And so through him, actually, I've been introduced to some wonderful East African music. And again, what you realise actually is different cultures have not only different instruments, but actually the way they look at music is very different to perhaps what we're used to in the Western world. So I think actually what I really enjoyed is sort of exploring the more sort of international elements um, of music. So, yeah, there's some wonderful stuff out there at an international stage that, that I'm really enjoying. No, no, I, look, that's a great, no, no, I mean, I think all, all your choices you said there, it's just a really diverse mix of music. And I've got to say, amongst other things, I mean, I enjoy lots of what we'd call cheesy music still, <laughs> yes. because, because I'm a, of a certain age when I grew up with that. But I've maintained a really big interest in, you know, disco, um, soulful house, disco house type music. But with that comes a lot of the sort of African disco and boogie music. And yeah. I've got I've got a number of records by Kiki Gayan. Uh, who, ah, you know, yes. And, you know, really, really funky African disco boogie music. And uh, and I've got others too, uh, which I, I mean, I won't take up time now on the podcast, but I do love African uh, boogie and disco music. So Yeah, and I do think it has a really different sort of beat to sort of what we yeah, might be used to. It's so infectious though. And you think people like, you know, Fela Kuti, and I think when you yes, look at yes. that, it's so different to what we might be used to, but it's so wonderful. And I do think my own view actually, Gotham, is to go through life and not hear some of this wonderful music from these oh, wonderful countries, you're missing out on something. I agree. I agree. Uh, it makes life happier for sure. And then, then what about film? Is there a, a particular film or, or films that you like to come back to once in a while after, you know, a heavy trial or you just want to sort of relive one of your favourite films? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it's often when you're, and I do think that this is why I think young people are absolutely wonderful. I mean, there's lots of data to show as well that with young people, their brains are moving at such an you know, enormous rate. They're rapidly developing. And I think in some way, Gotham, I think young people often feel things much more strongly and in a way that as adults sometimes we forget these things. But what I think that also means is when you're very young and you see a film that sort of resonates with you or you read something that resonates with you, you sort of carry it through even as an adult and it sort of you know evokes certain feelings and thoughts and emotions that um, that you had as a teenager, but you still very much remember them as you get older. And I think, again, when I was very, you know, when I was younger, I used to sort of, I was always sort of quite interested in film that was slightly sort of at the edges, I suppose, of what might be considered to be sort of mainstream cinematic view. Not for any particular reason, Gotham, but I've always had this view that if you live life at the edges and you go down weird alleys, that's how you discover weird and wonderful things. I agree. And in that, I think that sense has definitely stayed with me as an adult. And, and I think in particular, to be honest, Gotham, again, I've actually got a real sort of um, inclination for sort of foreign films and foreign directors so Almodova is someone who I think is absolutely superb. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I think all yeah. of his films are wonderful. And I think, you know, he obviously uses a range of actors from all over the world. But I think there's something about that sort of blend. And I think that often his films, I think, have really sort of deep, slightly dark aspects to them, which I think uh, some love I find, yeah, it's very, very compelling mm. viewing. But also I suspect like most people with young children, what you find, Gotham, is you have your own interests, then you have children, and then you end up watching the things that they love so as an adult in my, in my sort of 40s, I now seem to have um, watched every movie produced by Disney that you could possibly imagine. Yes. So, yeah, yeah the, the animation also seems to be a huge part of the things I'm watching these days. But I have to say it's really come along from when 
I was a lot younger. Yeah. So <laughs> it's almost too extreme for the spectrum in a way. Yeah, you know, I can't, I can't resist but say this before I turn to the last question is that, I mean, I'm really relieved that because my children are now a lot older. Uh, so my eldest is 25. Right. And my middle one's 23. My youngest one's 17. I don't, I'm not exposed to those Disney films anymore. <laughs> but, but when I was younger, as a younger dad, oh my goodness, I would fall asleep during these things. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. I have to be nudged. Wake up, wake up. Anyway. It's so true, God. And I also think, particularly when they're very young and you're slightly sleep deprived, I used to find yeah, you go to a cinema, the seat was really comfy, the lights are really low. I know. So, I know. as you say, you'd be dozing off and then your children sort of poke you in the elbow with their elbows. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I, I, I recall one time we were watching finding nemo in the cinema but i was finding my sleep that way. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean it was, it was a, i still remember that one so so the, so the last question i mean this has been a wonderful wonderful podcast i've enjoyed it tremendously simon you know my last question is about travel i mean you know are there any places that you particularly love or you as a family really love going to when you look forward to visiting again sometime soon yeah, absolutely. And I think we'd travel, actually. So d- when I was very young at Gotham, we didn't travel very much because I think we had a family business. We, we lived and breathed it 52 weeks a year. So when I was very young, our main trips were to see family in Pakistan. And I have huge memories of that because in a sense, Gotham, you'd go from living your life here, 10, 12 hours later, you'd go to... A, a, and it didn't seem like a different country. It seemed like a different world in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's the thing in some ways, actually, probably what that started off was this sense of actually wanting to explore, like, the, as it were, the unusual and stuff that's slightly off the beaten track. And I think um, that instinct has sort of stayed with me. And certainly as an adult, that perhaps has been, you know, what I've looked is look at places or go to places which perhaps are not as well-travelled as, as might otherwise be the case. And obviously it's difficult with young children but as we're now sort of getting out of that, that's something which we are really keen to try and do as we, as we can. As I mentioned, my husband um, has East, an East African connection. So we are, or we would like to travel more um, in East Africa. Obviously, you have beautiful countries, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, and, and more so than I can imagine. Um, so I think for me, Gotham, there's a particular, whether it's a, a subconscious compulsion or subconscious draw, I suppose mm-hmm. it's to exploring the East, as it were, and then to go even further along beyond that, uh, I haven't yet had the pleasure of going to Japan. Mm-hmm. That's actually another culture at some stage I really hope to explore. And I think primarily because Gotham, there's a sense of that they've got their own way of doing things. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really wonderful because that's how you expand your borders. That's how you expand your mind. And I think there's a real beauty in life of discovering things that are new to you. Um, and I think your yeah, travel, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful aspect of it. So yes. hopefully now that... Touchwood life is returning to normal. Yeah, something that we may, I may be able to explore more of. Absolutely, and you know, let, yeah, no, and you know, and yeah, I mean, travel really is a wonderful thing, and and a wonderful shared experience, especially when you're with uh, your family. Well, Simon, thank you very, very much. You've been an absolutely wonderful podcast guest. I've enjoyed our discussions tremendously. I know our listeners will enjoy them tremendously. Thank you very much for being such a wonderful example. Of achievement, you know, in a both for female lawyers, for lawyers from an ethnic background, and for all of those who will follow your great example. So, thank you again very, very much, Seema. Oh, it's my pleasure, Gotham, and thank you for inviting me on. And it's been a real pleasure to, uh, to do the podcast with you. 
Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.